0: It is really good to see you here, and it is really good to see you online as well. We are grateful to have you choosing to be with us on this Valentine's Day. And uh, Valentine's Day is a day where people uh, take the opportunity to let those they love know that they love them, and they're pursuing them, and, and they appreciate them. And it's a great day for this topic that we're going to be on today because we're going to look at a topic that's entitled, He's Calling You Too. And when he's calling each of us, Jesus pursued us. He did all the effort that it took for those of us who are quickly ignoring God and kind of going our own way and doing our own thing. He pursued us to let us know how much he loves us, how much God loves us, and how to have a response that makes all the difference as he makes all that difference in our lives. And so we're looking at... Three callings today, actually, three very personal callings. We're looking at the calling of Simon, also known as Peter. He's referred to with both names in the chapter we're looking at. And the calling of Levi, who's also known as Matthew. He'll only be called Levi in this chapter, but we know him as Matthew, uh, the writer of the Gospel of Matthew. And then we're taking a look at how there's a pattern here in the way he calls each of us as well. So we're looking at how Jesus is calling us. Now let's back up for a moment before we get into that topic specifically as we remind ourselves that we're looking at the certainty as described by Luke. And here's a little bit of review, just one line out of Luke chapter one, verse four, so that you may know the certainty. He gives us the reason why he's written the gospel of Luke. We're also going to discover that that's the reason why he wrote the book of Acts as well. So that we might know the certainty of the things that we've been instructed about Jesus and God and that we can know with certainty what that's all about. Now, the last two weeks together, we have looked at a simple roadmap to certainty with four words. And here are those four words. Hearing, believing, living, knowing. Knowing. Now, if you uh, were here the last couple of weeks, maybe you feel like I've just chosen those four words arbitrarily. That is not the case. Maybe you thought I chose the order of those four four words arbitrarily. That is not the case. I'm actually, like I said before, we're looking at the certainty uh, which Luke is presenting to us through the lens which he later presents to us in Acts to really understand what Jesus is about. And he's instructing us what Jesus is about and what he came to do and what he did. We don't fully understand it until after the resurrection. And after the resurrection is when we start to gather all the data about the movement, the power, the Holy Spirit, and we begin to know with certainty what Jesus was all about. And so we need to look at the Gospel of Luke through the lens of the movement that is described in Acts. And I want to show you these four words Um, the four concepts here in those words, in the roadmap to certainty, out of the lens of Acts for a moment, so you see what I mean. So we're going to go right at the launch of the movement when the Holy Spirit comes in power because of the victory of Jesus, and we're going to see this roadmap as I've been describing for two weeks now in Acts chapter 2. We're looking at Acts chapter 2, 36 through 38. It reads, therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty. That should sound familiar. This time, though, it's not Luke's pen who is writing it only. Luke is recording Peter's message. We're going to get back to Peter when Peter is called. He's going to be called Simon, but then we'll see him Simon Peter in Luke's text in a moment. But Peter is the one that launches the sermon that starts to help people put it all together what the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus was all about. And he gave this sermon here. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty. This is his conclusion to his entire sermon, and it's also the conclusion of what is taking place in a visible demonstration of the power of God at the launch of the movement. You'll have to read Acts 2 uh, to get a hold of all of those pieces. Let's continue the sentence. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus... Whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Now, you should, if you were in that audience, begin to feel the finger pointing at you right there. That God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. And it is a very convicting conclusion to this message. You guys thought he was of the devil. You guys thought that he was completely off and wrong, but God has vindicated him in resurrection, and we have all been eyewitnesses of this, and he demonstrates this through prophecy and fulfillment, and then with the, all, the power which they've seen in their midst, and he's now bringing them to a point of conviction, and here's what we read next. Verse 37, when they heard, now we should be, Tracking with our roadmap now because we start with hearing. It goes from hearing to believing to living to knowing. So now we have, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. So now we have hearing and believing. They're pierced to the heart. You're not pierced to the heart if you're not believing. They're totally believing at this point and the conviction of the Spirit is upon them and they're believing the message of Peter and they're going, oh. No, because the finger of condemnation, or let's put it this way, conviction, condemnation is a little too heavy because Jesus did not come to condemn, but to set us free. And they're feeling it as it pierces their heart. So we have hearing, believing, and then, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Which is now the question about living. What do we need to do now? We've heard it, we believe it, what do we do? How do we live it? I'm lost if you don't tell me what to do. And they're feeling that. So we have the hearing and the believing and now the response that is required which is action out of that believing. If you don't have the action that comes out of that believing it is a useless kind of believing. What do we do? Peter replied, repent. And be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And now that is, the word wasn't used, now that is the covenant knowing. It's a particular kind of relationship that you have entered into if you've been baptized in this covenant ceremony where you identify and come into union with Jesus Christ In his death, his burial, his resurrection, uniting you in your death of your past, the burial of your past, and the resurrection to a new life, which the gospel and the writers consistently refer to as being born again. A conversion takes place where your old life is left behind. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So it requires a response before God gives the gift. And the response is a response of faith and laying aside in surrender everything that you want control of in your life. You're saying, now you become the center of my life. You take the reins. You have done all this. You have pursued me. Now we should, and Valentine's Day is a good day, to bring this connection together. It's very much a covenant relationship like marriage. In marriage, somebody pursues and pursues and says, will you marry me? And if you come to the place of love and trust and response, you say, yes, I will. And then in covenant vows, and the ceremony that brings two people together, they say, I do. And this is what they're asking. What should we do? And Peter responds with a covenant ceremony. This is how you start with Jesus. You say, I'm all in. I do. I'm following Jesus. I'm letting my whole life be buried into him so that his burial becomes my burial. His resurrection becomes my resurrection. His pursuit, he's captured my heart. I'm all in. I'm yours. Yes, I will marry you. I will become one with you. And Jesus is asking for that kind of response. And so, when we're talking about the roadmap to certainty, you will never be certain if you walk as our current climate walks with an aversion to commitment. Our culture is so commitment-averse that people are stalled out in their life, and they wait for life to happen, and they follow their heart wherever their heart leads, as long as it's not commitment. And... The scriptures teach us over and over and over again. Your heart is dangerous. Your heart will lead you astray. Your heart is sinful. Follow God. And when you follow God, commit to Him. You'll never find your way apart from commitment. You become what you are committed to. I haven't even got to Luke. This is powerful stuff. So if this is touching your heart, even right now, at the outset, in the introduction of this message, be just logging it away, have I ever said, yes, I do, to Jesus? Has my baptism just simply been the expression of my parents' faith when I was little, Have I ever expressed it for myself in biblical immersion, which is what baptism means, and said, yes, I'm all in, I am going to obey this? Just catalog that right now, because you may just simply have questions of logistics for me next Sunday afternoon. What are the logistics? How does this work? Tell me more, because I want to start with Jesus. All right, are you ready to start a sermon? We're going to take a look at three callings today. Point number one, Jesus called Simon. In Luke chapter 5, verse 3, he, that is Jesus, got into one of the boats which belonged to Simon and asked him to put out a little from the land. Now, you need to understand the context a little bit here. Simon, that is Peter, James and John, were fishing all night long. They had multiple boats, and they were skunked. It was a horrible night. They're professional fishermen, and it was a terrible night. They had not a single fish to show for the night's labor, and they're just taking care of the nets. It's morning now, and a huge crowd has come and followed Jesus, whom they've heard about, they've listened to uh, here and there, and, and here he has the audacity to get into Simon's boat and ask Simon, now I'm not quite sure whether Simon's tending his nets, in the boat or out of the boat, I think it's out of the boat, Simon, can you take me out a little bit? And he does, gets in the boat, takes him out a little bit. A lot of scholars talk about what a wonderful acoustic setting that is. Without any PA system, Jesus is able to then communicate to thousands up the bank In a normal tone of voice almost, you can hear at the very back row exactly what he's saying as he's teaching on the boat. And yet, what I want you to see is Jesus is pursuing Simon. Without being asked, he gets into Simon's boat. He has the audacity to ask Simon now, interrupt everything he's doing, and take him a little bit out so he can begin to teach. Then we pick up in... Then he, Jesus, sat down and was teaching the crowds from the boat. Now, what takes place then is first Jesus gets into his boat, and now Simon minding his own business, probably still working on nets and just kind of listening in. He can't help but hear everything Jesus says, and he's very up close. He might not be looking at him. He might be doing his thing, but Jesus is getting into Simon's head. So Jesus got into his boat, and now Jesus is getting into Simon's head. And then we keep reading Luke 5, 4 through 5. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. (laughs) Master, Simon replied, we've worked hard all night long and caught nothing. But if you say so, I'll let down the nets. Now, I don't know how you read that because all we have is text. It's, so I read it. I couldn't help but probably put in whatever tone I, I try to stay with a neutral tone and put it in there. But can you imagine what tone the professional fisherman now has with the itinerant teacher? Okay, uh, excuse me. I, I'm a professional fisherman. We were skunked all night long. And now you want me to go back out there? I've already got the nets like folded up and put away. And Are you serious? I know what I'm doing. This is just a really bad time to fish. We have tried and tried and tried. That's probably going through his head. But he doesn't say it because he has gained respect of this man. Enough respect that he sets aside his tone and he says... If you say so, if you say so, I'll let down my nets. Jesus got into the boat. Jesus got into his head. Jesus got into his business. And Simon has a choice here at this point when Jesus gets into your business. Wait a minute. Don't be messing with my life. This is my life. Don't be messing with my business. This is business. And yet he has enough respect for Jesus that he is blessed. Because even though inside he probably doesn't want to, he respects Jesus enough. He says, if you say so. Now, here, let's just pause right there because there's a lot of things that Jesus says that come in conflict with what we want. But if we will have enough respect for Jesus... That when he asks us to do something we don't want, we say, but if you say so, I'll go completely against what I want and I'll do what you say. That is what it looks like to then suddenly experience something that is a blessing that comes from Jesus that you would have never experienced apart from saying yes to Jesus when everything inside your heart says no. So he decides, okay, I'll give it a go. And then he throws the nets over probably half-heartedly. And then suddenly there's this very familiar jerk on the other end of the net. And then the familiar jerk becomes very unfamiliar, like nothing he's felt before. He's holding on, he's latching things together and the boat is literally listing and it's becoming problematic. And he shouts out to the other boats, I need your help. My nets are breaking boats, get over here, James. John! And this thing is hauling him and causing problems, and the other boats, they quickly rush out to where he is, not too far offshore, and they rally around the nets, and they haul in the greatest catch they've ever caught in a single net, and it's busting nets, it's nearly swamping the boat, and he was so blessed. And then we read something quite odd, in verse 8, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me because I'm a sinful man, Lord. He is Jewish enough. Now, he's fully Jewish. But in that day when you're Jewish, you're religious. And you have a view of God and God's holiness, and a view of your own sinfulness and what it requires to be set free from sin according to the temple system. And he knows he falls far short of everything holy. I am so not holy is his feeling. In fact, he has heard Jesus speak and now it's, he's gotten into his head. It's, it's in every way affecting him now. And I just want to summarize where we've been as we're looking at these verses. So, Jesus got into his boat... Jesus got into his head. Jesus got into his business. Jesus got to his heart. Up until this point, I don't think he's got to his heart. But suddenly, it cuts right through, just like we read in Acts, pierced to his heart. And he recognizes he's a sinful man. Before this time, he probably is like a good Jewish boy. I'm doing all the good Jewish things. I just take care of myself at the temple. And God will bless me because I'm a religious person who is a Jewish boy doing my thing. But in contact with true holiness, pierced right through. I am not worthy to be in the same boat with you. And it's a very common response among those who are called by God. I am totally, totally inadequate to even be next to you. You need to know this because I can see that you are holy and I am so not holy. Get away from me. You're holy and I am not even close. Keep your distance or you'll be defiled. I hear that so often by people that haven't been coming to church, and they say things like, I can't go to your church. The roof will cave in if I come to your church, et cetera, et cetera. And in, some, in one case, you know, somebody did come to church, and the next week our trusses in our building did collapse, and we laughed about it, and I baptized that person shortly thereafter. Uh, yeah, no, that wasn't because of them. Luke 5.10, Jesus' response, don't be afraid, Jesus told Simon. From now on, you'll be catching people. Would you just take a look at this question? Have you ever felt inadequate for the task God has called you to do? He prompts you to do something, and you're going, no, I can't do that. He, he's s- s- suggesting uh, something you kind of feel this conviction come over, you need to do, and you just feel completely inadequate. All right, uh, this is just a quick insight into me. I am called to teach. I am called to lead. There isn't a day that goes by that I don't feel completely inadequate to lead, to pastor. And I feel like I have felt more inadequate than ever in the last year or so to lead us. But I have come to terms with this a number of years ago that that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. I'm going to take you away from Luke for a moment as we take a look at words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, where he says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, Paul had a weakness. We don't know what it is. He was crying out that this thorn in his side, this fleshly... um, impairment of some sort, and there's many guesses as to what it is. I'm kind of glad that we are not told what it is, because we can identify with whatever it is as our weakness. He pleaded three times that God would take it away, and he stopped after three because of this answer. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Then Paul's response to God's answer to his prayer is this. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. Why? So that Christ's power may rest on me. He got it. If you know you are inadequate and you know you are weak, you will then experience the privilege of Christ's power resting on you. If you think you've got this, and you're operating according to your strength, you'll never know how Christ's power has been made perfect through this weakness and experience the power of God resting on you. I want to just kind of go with that a little bit further. I want to compare our faith. I hope this isn't... Too simplistic, but it's just a word picture to help us. Like faith, a rubber band is only functional when it is appropriately stretched. If it's not stretched at all, it cannot serve its purpose. If it's stretched too far, it snaps. You have to find that adequate, appropriate stretch. If you only do what you can do, it's never of faith. If you only take the next step that you're equipped to take on your own, and do in your own strength, and you feel adequate to do, your faith will not be stretched. But if you allow your faith to be stretched, and you take a step in that faith to do something you feel inadequate to do, God can make perfect his power in that transaction, and you can experience and begin to experience the power of God resting on you. And it's step by step as you experience that more and more. It's stretch by stretch without stretching too far and snapping. As you're being called to another uncomfortable place, another place is asking you to take, take faith and lean on him, and cry out to him, and make yourself small in your own eyes, and humble yourself before him, and act more like a four-year-old than whatever age you are. Because a four-year-old says, daddy, can I help you with that? As daddy is moving a refrigerator across the floor. Sure, son, come on, right here. Help me with this. And boy, the four-year-old feels so strong. He can move a refrigerator across the floor. And let's move the sofa sleeper. Okay, I'll help you, daddy. And he puts his effort into the, and he feels it move. But who's doing the lion's share of all the powerful moving? It's the daddy of the four-year-old. And the daddy is so gracious, gracious. And wonderful to invite. And this is a covenant invitation in a calling. Join me. Come with me. Let's do this thing. Allowing his power to be combined with our power. But it's even more intimate than that. Where his power literally rests on us. And his power is invading us. And we begin to experience something that is such a rush when you experience it. Where God is moving Things that you cannot move in the natural. Doing what cannot be done in the natural. And lives begin to change. And differences begin to be made. This is what Jesus is calling Peter to. I wasn't going to get into personal, but I'm going to just throw this in a little bit. Um, I repeated third grade. I was not academic in orientation. I hated reading. I hated studying. I struggled in elementary school. In junior high, my greatest fear was public speaking, and that lingered for years. I went off to college, and I began to appreciate study. And I began to appreciate books. It was step by step and stretch by stretch. For years and years and years, every time a weekend would roll around, I would get sick in my whole digestive system, turn inside out practically every Sunday before I'd get up and speak in front of people. I wish I could say I'm no longer terrified. But there's still occasion where I feel completely inadequate and terrified still. And yet, step by step and stretch by stretch, there's nothing more beautiful than seeing God work through little old four-year-old me. He's calling you too. Luke 5, 10 through 11 reads, Don't be afraid. Jesus told Simon, From now on you will be catching people. Then they, Simon, James, and John, brought the boats to land. Whoa, they left everything. Those are those are the tools of their trade. They left everything and followed him. Point number two, Jesus called Levi. As we move on to verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, boy, in just one sentence, we have this blam. It's like, what? And that's how it felt to those who are following Jesus, too. You're saying it to him? Follow me. After this, Jesus went out, saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. I won't get into all the background about how hated tax collectors were because they were just turning against their own nation and collecting taxes and extorting them and getting wealthy for the opposition, Rome who is in power, and he's a Jewish man working for Rome, and Jesus is calling him, and he simply says, follow me. And then we read verse 28. So, leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. <laughs> We're not even given explanation as to what's going on in his head, what's going on in his heart, why things clicked, what pierced him. What did he see in Jesus? Has he been listening? You mean you, you're not rejecting me? Everybody else rejects me. And was it the look of love? Was it the pursuit of love? Whatever it was, he left everything and followed a man that the whole all the crowds are clamoring to, and he begins to just listen and follow Same pattern as Peter, left everything and followed. Then he has this interesting party, and it caused big controversy. Skip to verse 30, but the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So Levi put on a tax collector party with all his uh, rebel friends, and a sinful, rebellious people party, and he wants to introduce all his sinful friends to Jesus who... Didn't put them down, didn't condemn them, loved him. And they're having this party and having a good time, and the Pharisees are aghast. They can't believe it. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus replied to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I'm, probably don't need to remind you, but I will, that this whole message about he's calling people. He's calling people. All of us who are brought up in kind of boxes and religious structures always think the calling is just for the special people. The calling is just for priests and pastors and prophets and apostles. He's calling sinners. What is he calling them to? I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners, to what? To repentance. That's what he's calling everybody to. He's pursuing, 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 loving and calling us to repentance. Why doesn't Jesus call the righteous? I mean, he he even said, I haven't come to call the righteous. Why doesn't he come to call the righteous? Well, frankly, because it doesn't work. I'm going to need to skip ahead to chapter 7 in Luke to just give you why it doesn't work. In Luke 7, 29 through 30, and when all the people, including the tax collectors, heard this, they acknowledged God's way of righteousness. Now, these sinners acknowledged God's way of righteousness because they had been baptized with John's baptism, which was a baptism of repentance. It hasn't become the baptism into Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection yet, but it was a washing clean, a ceremony that was reserved for only Gentiles to have to undergo before they practice Judaism and all of these tax collectors and sinners who are Jews themselves, they said, we need to wash ourselves clean just like Gentiles before we follow this Messiah. And they acknowledged along with hordes and hordes of Jewish people, but watch who doesn't acknowledge that. Verse 30, but since the Pharisees and experts in the law had not been baptized by him, they rejected the plan of God for themselves. Why? The call to repentance was rejected and the reason it was rejected is you can't offer a prescription to the sick if they don't think they're sick. They will have nothing to do with the prescription. I'm fine. Why are you addressing me like that? The Pharisees And the scribes thought they were God's gift to humanity. They were the examples to all. They weren't sinful. What are you talking to us like that? We don't need to be baptized like a Gentile proselyte. We're the ones that everybody should be like. And Jesus could not help them. A call to repentance to a Pharisee will not work because they don't think they need to repent. Everything about them is all about comparison horizontally with everybody around them. I'm better than everybody. I'm better than them, better than them, better than them, better than them. I've been doing religious stuff. I fast twice a week. I read the Bible. I do all this. I do all this. I'm good. And Jesus says, you're lost because you have rejected my call to repentance. I am still called to repentance. To turn and humble myself before Jesus every day and acknowledge my weakness, acknowledge my sinfulness, acknowledge the fact that I need to be forgiven, come back to the cross, and allow his goodness, his prescription, to become mine. As soon as I confess and humble myself, he floods me with grace. If I harden myself and go the route of pride and say, I'm good, he distances himself with that rejection of pride. Only those who humble themselves before God does he just rush in and meet. He's opposed to the proud, and if there's anything I don't want, I don't want to be opposed opposed by the Almighty. So humbling myself and acknowledging that this is the path to righteousness is part of the call. So, point number three, Jesus called you. Verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He's calling all of us because all of us are sinners, but he cannot help anybody who thinks they are not. And anybody who thinks they're not a sinner will reject the call. But if you know you're a sinner because you fall far short of God's standard, listen, Leave God out of the picture. I fall far short of my own standard. I can't even be the husband I want to be or the father I want to be or the pastor I want to be or the man I want to be. I need God and I need God's grace and his strength as I acknowledge my weakness. That's the call. And so let me just ask you a series of questions. Jesus got into his boat, that is Peter's boat, How has he pursued you? Jesus got into his head. Has Jesus changed your thinking? And maybe there's some thoughts going on right now where the Spirit of God is pounding on your heart and pounding on your head and saying, have I said yes to Jesus? I haven't been baptized. Maybe you need to think this through. Jesus got into his business. Can you say, if you say so, I'll do it? Every one of us has established a pattern of life where we think we know how to be happy. And Jesus is saying, I'll make you happier. Set that aside. Leave it behind. Say yes to me, and I'll bless you far more. Leave it all behind and follow me. It's not enough to add me as an add-on. Don't add Jesus to your life. He has to be your center. He will not let you get away with having him be a part of your life. He says, no, I am Lord. I'll call the shots. If you don't surrender to me as Lord, that isn't salvation. That's religion. You need salvation. When the Spirit of God comes in, when you surrender it all, I'm all in. My old life is buried, gone. Your life, what you say, I'll do. I leave it all and follow you. Jesus got into his heart got to his heart, are you ready to leave everything behind and follow him? Now, before I just close it down here, move on, I want to make sure that I address one common misunderstanding. Everybody thinks of the calling as only for the call into full-time ministry, like Peter and like Matthew, into full-time ministry. Leave their careers behind. That may not be the case for you, You don't have to leave your career behind to be Jesus in the center, everything changes. And Paul says it this way to all the called. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people. He's talking about your career. If you cannot do your career for God at the center, then maybe you need to rethink your career. But once you... everything is about me my job is about me my income is about me my career is about me it's building my kingdom if you can set that aside and start working instead of working for your boss or working for your career kingdom development start working for the Lord you can have a boss you hate and stop working for that boss and keep the same job and start working for the Lord and he'll see an attitude shift an attitude change where it's all about Jesus and giving glory to Jesus. And so I'm not necessarily saying all of us have to quit our jobs and all of us are going to become missionaries and become pastors or or in some kind of nonprofit. I'm not saying that. But every one of us who says yes to Jesus, we're called to make him the center, and it changes everything about your career. And you start to become a peacemaker, a reconciliation builder, a talk about Jesus when you are... Don't take work time to just be gospel talking, but talk about Jesus in relationship in such a way that you're making a difference for all the people around you and watch God work through your weakness. Boom, a movement is taking place all across the globe is what Acts tells us, and we're still in it. He's calling you too. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are thankful that you remind us, that you love us, you pursue us, you want to stretch us and fill us, and invite us to partner with you in powerful ways, and experience you changing our whole world around us for the better, and to partner with you in that. I pray that you would, by your spirit, help each of us to take a step, which is a stretch from where we are comfortable as we lean on you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So if you have a prayer need, we've got a prayer team that's gonna meet to the side. Leaders, if you're here and can pray with us and need some help praying for people, whatever that prayer need might be. Next week in the afternoon is Start With Jesus. If you need to consider that, please don't just uh, walk away and forget. Walk across the hall and sign up. And this is the last day to sign up, I believe, so do that and... uh, Next week, we will see you for Jesus forgives. That's the certainty we'll focus on. Jesus forgives. God bless you. See you next week.